Today, we are continuing with our ongoing series on Conversations with Remarkable Minds. The gentleman today is Professor Morris Berman. The topic, National Social Illusion versus Reason and Reality. Professor Morris Berman is one of today's leading cultural historians and social critics with the ability to see the large picture of America's past, present, and future directions. He's taught at numerous universities in Europe and North America, the latest being Johns Hopkins and Catholic universities. And he is the author of the important trilogy about the evolution of consciousness, the reenchantment of the world, coming to our senses, and the wandering God. Nice to have you with us today, Professor Berman. Professor Berman, are you there? I am. Thanks very much for the invitation. Good. Now, I'm going to give a rather extensive intro to some different topics, as I know that your interests are broad-based, and I would like for you to uh, listen to these and then give us your feedback, all right? Sure. Okay. A little different way of doing an interview. No, sounds good. Um, I want to begin by some of the issues we do not examine in our society. We seem preoccupied with who's getting wealthy, who has power, celebrity status, and how somehow, by paying attention to these issues, that we are all better as a society, including the 14,000 mark on Wall Street, the enormous uh, profits made by hedge funds and equity companies. And I'm saying, from my point of view, this is all an illusion. It does not represent a real truth that can be universally applied to sustaining the quality of our lives, either individually or collectively as a society. I, and I, I guess this all came about for me in last Sunday's um, New York Times front page, the richest of the rich, proud of a new gilded age. And it says, charity and skills justify it all, tycoons say. Now, mind you, now they're no longer citizens of the United States. They are tycoons. And it says the wealth, nation's wealthiest say they are proud of the new Gilded Age. And then they go back and they show us pictures of who else they are comparing the new policymakers to because when you become wealthy and powerful in the United States, by extension you join what I call the cult of the professional. You are automatically asked for your advice, irrespective of the ethics of how you made your money or its impact upon individuals or, or the environment. So as a result, we will ask someone, like Bill Gates, who made it in computer software, about something having to do with AIDS. Well, he gave hundreds of millions of dollars to fight AIDS in Africa. My documentary, AIDS Inc., which showed filming in 22 countries in Africa, showed that AIDS is not the problem. Starvation and diseases they've always had are. No one's treating them. But he is called upon as one of the world's greatest authorities on AIDS because he has the wealthiest foundation in the world. So I'm, I'm seeing a disconnect between the illusion of helping because you're rich and powerful and you give money versus the reality that no one gets better because of that. And then he's compared with John Rockefeller, Cornelius Vanderbilt, John Jacob Astor, Stephen Gerard, uh, Andrew Carnegie, A.T. Stewart, um, Frederick Weisenhauser, Jay Gould, um, and Marshall Field, Henry Ford, Sam Walton, Andrew Mellon, and uh, and when I look at just those individuals, there's one thing that is not said about them, and also in J.P. Morgan and John Blair. Now, I've studied the backgrounds in these individuals, and they indeed were the Gilded Age's wealthiest, most powerful individuals, both financially, politically, and economically, and socially. 
But to a person, how they made their money meant that others had to suffer. And only later in life, like Carnegie, did he give some to hospitals or foundations or universities, but never once having truly apologized for having worked people 70 to 100 hours a week under inhumane conditions, including using child labor, many of these people did, or what uh, the Vanderbilts did with the uh, Chinese who were in America. So, And today I look around and I see people doing the same identical thing. I see people making vast fortunes, giving it to the left or giving it to the right, and suddenly they're considered the ultimate uh, spokespersons. For example, the, one of the wealthiest men on the left who made his money primarily trading in, in, uh, uh, in currencies, and, uh, and he made enormous amount, over $7 billion, George Soros. But he shorted the ruble, causing over 100 million Russians to lose the value of what they had, so they suffered. He shorted the peso, causing a massive bailout by the United States government, mainly to protect uh, some of the Wall Street firms. And then he also shorted the, uh, uh, the deal in Southeast Asia. But nobody cares about that. It's as if we don't care how you make your money. And as long as you make your money and you become famous and powerful, we'll give you the illusion that you're a significant contributor to our culture, i.e., Henry Kravitz, the biggest corporate takeover artist in the world, he becomes president of Channel 13, PBS. And in that position, no one says, gee, did you make your money causing people to get injured or die from cigarette smoking? You own R.J. Nabisco. Nobody asks that. They just want the money, and they want to be associated with these people. Now, I'd like your position, your thoughts. I've given you mine on why I believe that we are not separating out cause and effect and looking at the idea that the most powerful should not necessarily be the policymakers or opinion leaders, but inevitably are. Right, right. Well, um, in terms of the uh, data you've given us, um, I, I don't have you know much to disagree with, Gary. But uh, let me talk a little bit about um, some of the, the background to this. Uh, the first first thing is that. Um, uh, there is a, an identification in the United States uh, on the part of the American people with wealth and success, um, as you say, regardless of how it was achieved. And this goes back a very long time. Uh, in other words, a lot of what I argue in the book, Dark Ages America, is not about recent history. It's not particularly about George Bush or war in Iraq, but it's about structural factors that go back to the founding of the republic that are now catching up with us in a way that's doing us in and uh... an example of one that's relevant to what you've just discussed i think is the shift in the definition of virtue in the in the colonies uh, in the seventeen nineties um, you know uh, the crux of the american revolution of course was to reject europe hierarchy organic society and so on but it tended, the revolution tended to throw out the baby with the bathwater because what those feudal, organic, and hierarchical, hierarchical societies did have was the idea of noblesse oblige. Uh, that, that is to say, you take care of other people. And somebody uh, within the hierarchy had an obligation to the society. And so the idea of virtue, the classic idea of virtue, was um, being a person who takes care of the community somebody who does things that are positive for the community. 
Um, in the 1790s, under the pressure of uh, capitalist ideology, Adam Smith, and so on, um, the, ver- the definition of virtue began to shift in the colonies from taking care of the community to taking care of yourself and your family. A person who was virtuous became a person who was successful in an opportunistic environment. And by the time of Thomas Jefferson's election in 1800, that got pretty well entrenched. One could say Jefferson even ran on that as a, as a platform. And so from that time, the idea of being a virtuous citizen was somebody who pursues their own self-interest. Therefore, when you look at somebody like Bill Gates, the average American, instead of being shocked and repulsed by somebody who has uh, as much wealth as the bottom half of the United States, $46 billion or whatever it is, it's equal to the, the same amount of wealth as the bottom 50% of the country. Instead of being shocked and revulsed by a system that would produce such an, an individual, they see him as a hero because going back to the 1790s, that was heroic behavior. So we have an enormous commitment going back more than 200 years to uh, extreme individualism uh, and success in a competitive market. In other words, we have a tradition of the pursuit of wealth as being a good thing. Very few Americans will point out, for example, that charity is simply the bourgeois version of justice. There is no justice in a system that allows somebody to have $46 billion. This is not free you know, enterprise, it's free vampirism. But Americans will applaud that instead of saying there's something profoundly wrong with that. And when uh, Bill Gates gives to AIDS, and what the heck, we might as well have that than nothing. But as you pointed out, um, the issues are not one of AIDS as much as rich or poor. And the phenomenon of globalization has made the poor much poorer, much more liable to disease, all that sort of thing. So, you know, uh, the other thing I would add is, of course, that what does wealth really consist of? long time ago, Robert Kennedy pointed out that the GDP, or as it was then called, the gross national product, includes things like profits from the cancer industry, pollution, um, you know, hospital uh, auto accidents and uh, the amount that's paid to insurance companies and all that. How could that be part of our wealth? How, do, how does that fit into a calculation of our wealth? That's not wealth. So there are a lot of complex issues, but I think you've put your finger on the crucial point, and that is that the American public lives within illusion. It does not get down to the root issues of what reality really consists about. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago in The New Yorker, Louis Minan did an article about um, the political thinking of the American public and basically characterized it as little more than a joke. He said it's not that Americans work through issues and think through these things or even know anything about them. It's all ad hoc politics. It's all emotionally based or what was on TV or who's got the best logo. This is a perfect formula for a country to commit suicide, to do itself in. I appreciate that opening statement. I'd like to go in four different areas. And I, again, will give a little preamble to each. I've involved my entire career as a clinician and scientist in the public health arena. But instead of looking at covering uh, the disease part, 
meaning working from the disease of eliminating symptoms, I've looked at mainly the prevention. What could you do to prevent a disease? So today we have the big debate, and it's not going any further. Therefore, the people who are in power are framing a debate as if they're heroic if they either uh, cause people to be covered by a health insurance, universal health insurance, or those who say, no, let people pay for it themselves and get better private health care. And I say both are wrong because if every single American were covered by universal health care, you would not lessen disease at all. You would lessen some of the uh, financial responsibility and, uh, and the hardship of some of the people who could not afford some of the medication. But what are you doing to help a person who has arthritis or heart disease understand, A, how they could use natural non-toxic approaches to ameliorate that or change it, in which the evidence is overwhelming we can, and B, what can you do to prevent these since there is no preventative program? And I, there we run into the, the myth. The myth is that we have a health care system that does nothing concerning health, and yet it's the single largest expense, $2.2 trillion this year. That's trillion. That's the largest single expenditure in the world for a single, uh, a sin- single effort. It dwarfs the military-industrial budget by almost 350%. Even housing and food together don't come near it. So what we have is we have health care that that's really about sickness maintenance, and people profit from it, from doctors and hospitals to insurance companies. But no one's really getting better because the incidence of disease is increasing, morbidity and mortality. And for the first time in American history, first time, children now, many can expect to live less, uh, less uh, quality lives than their parents, and many, many parents will see their children die before they do because the life expectancy is coming down because we now have adult diabetes in children, heart disease, arthritis in children that we've never had in the past because the very system that we're living with that provides the forum for Bill Gates and the political opportunity both left and right to support that market enterprise says, watch the commercials, trust them, buy the product. So kids and parents eat the junk foods uh, and get sick and then take the drugs and not cure any of this but even have compounding problems. In fact, last year, in a very important paper that five of us, five physicians and PhDs published, called Death by Medicine, the number one cause of death and injury in the United States was American medicine. I'm not against American medicine. I'm against what doesn't work. But we're not willing to change it. Not a single hearing, not a single issue, no, no discussion in medical schools or uh, AMA or any national institute to change a system that clearly is a problem. And my concern is if you can cause 100,000 Americans to die because of Vioxx and not a single person be held accountable, pay some fines and walk away with enhanced stock, you're considered then positive to invest in. And I'm having to say if you killed a person, you'd be considered a murderer. But if you kill 100,000 people, you get a raise and you're suddenly praised. Everybody wants you at their party. And if you give a $2 trillion to disease, nobody gets better. And if you're not spending one penny upon what's causing the nature of disease to begin with, but you're spending enormous amounts of money in advertising and hundreds of billions in profit from what causes disease, to me, that is a prescription for ultimate disaster, the very society that's trying to maintain itself, all with the smoke and mirrors that we care about your health, you don't. We care about how to treat you, you don't. We care about truth and honesty in advertising, you don't. We care about our children and why are you drugging 11 million each day with kitty cocaine Ritalin. 
and why are you giving us all these false diagnoses? Somehow something's wrong with us. We want to stand up for ourselves. Defiant disorder. Where'd that come from? Then Thomas Jefferson, virtually every person who signed the Declaration of Independence today would be in a psych ward on um, on uh, uh, ser- selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, and a few of them, including Thomas Paine, would already have had his 77th section of electroconvulsive therapy. Your thoughts, please. <laughs> Well, clearly you've thought a lot about it. <laughs> um, the issue of, um, you know, of universal health care versus alternatives is a whole other discussion. Just to take the issue of universal health care itself, um, the, I've always been impressed in, in the negative sense that uh, the United States is the only industrial country that doesn't have real health care coverage for its citizens. In fact, the health care plan that Bismarck instituted in Germany in 1871 is better than what we have in the United States in 2007. And that's literally, literally the case. So, um, you know, that, that's the first thing. The, the second thing, again, is we've got a situation now with 45 million people, last time I checked the stats, 45 million people without any health care coverage whatsoever. And um, the thing that um, is again impressive is that I'm not sure the American people care that much. You know, again, it comes back to the, this issue of uh, a brainwashing that kind of occurred very early on in the Republic about the only thing that counts is the individual, and that becomes the basic unit of society, at most the family. Um, but the larger culture Americans don't think sociologically. They're not trained to do that. And they don't think in terms of community. And that's been very well documented. Um, Seymour Martin Lipset, in his book, uh, American Exceptionalism, uh, reproduces the results of polls taken during the Depression, where you had uh, thousands of people living in cars uh, on the banks of the Mississippi River because they couldn't be in homes anymore. I mean, the cars didn't work either, but, you know, that's where they slept it's, uh, for seven years, you know, during the Depression. And those same individuals that were in- interviewed uh, were opposed to government aid. They were opposed to the New Deal. They were opposed to the redistribution of wealth. Um, this is a pretty wacky country on a world scale that would, you know, that, that the people that actually are suffering from capitalism are its major proponents you know so one thing is that it's not like we're going to have a groundswell on the part of the american people for uh... health care uh... they the the philosophy really is uh, a real man does it on his own and that's that's you know pervades the entire scene um, so that's one problem with it uh, the other thing that I would uh, point out is that there are very few venues, maybe your show is one of them, but there are very, very few venues in the United States where reality gets discussed and you get down to the real causes of things as opposed to the usual kind of TV baloney that circulates in this country as accepted wisdom. For example, um, I think you and I would probably uh, agree that all illness or most illness has a psychosomatic component. Over 95%. Yeah, right. That's what I would think. And that means that the way you're living and way you're thinking and what your emotional state is is going to influence your body 
very significantly. And um, I can tell you that from all the statistics of the way Americans work, for example, 350 average of 350 hours more a year than the Euro their European counterparts, um, all the data uh, indicate that we are stressed out to the max. I mean, beyond any reasonable sort of limit, well, of course the human body is going to break down under that system. There was a uh, joint UK-US uh, medical study that turned up the fact that uh, the richest citizens in the United States had health that was as poor as the poorest citizens in Great Britain. How do you figure that? You know, I mean, we have created a society that's high pressure, high stress, and we think it's fabulous. Meanwhile, we're getting sick as dogs, you know. Uh, I could give you stories of, you know, my own personal life that, um, you know, somehow the, the stress level that I had to put up with put me in a doctor's office or some health practitioner's office on a weekly basis, and I don't think I'm that unusual. Meanwhile, I couldn't afford it. And so we don't address the issue of the way of life and the way we're living, that there's something fundamentally wrong with everybody's got to make it on their own, and it's okay if one person owns enough wealth equal to the bottom half percent. And so our belief system is killing us. It's always been that way. People don't die uh, primarily from cigarette smoke or alcohol. They die from the belief system that it was important enough for their image to smoke. And my father smoked, my mother smoked, and there were ads I found in the Journal of the American Medical Association from the 1940s and 50s saying lucky strikes, uh, 47,000 doctors recommended to soothe a woman's throat and nerves. Mm -hmm. It's the belief system. It's a belief system that says, you know, that young kids should be acting like Britney Spears or Leslie Lohan because that's a model. And, and everyone takes their cues of what's right from social models. But look at the models we have. You know, I look, and look at Barry Bonds. I'm not going to respect the fact when he passed Hank Aaron because he did it by fraud. And and I also, I, I don't support the Olympics. And I'm an athlete. I'm a competitive athlete. And But I, I, because I believe if you're an amateur, then you cannot compete in the Olympics. But look at Michael Jordan and Larry Bird and Magic Johnson, all the best, all all playing in the Olympics. Well, what were they doing playing in the Olympics? Well, because it was good business. But it w went against the ethic of what it was supposed to be about. So we're purely about illusion in our society, and if we don't address the illusion, then we've got a problem. Now, let me just bring you to another point, which I, I, is getting a little deeper into the topic, but we're just getting, uh, getting the muscles loose now. Um, I believe that we cannot, it is not possible to win a war against terrorism unless you understand how we have participated in alienating uh, people because of our beliefs throughout history. And I believe that the intervention in the, in, in the Middle East, not, uh, not just with Iraq, but even with our lopsided participation in Israel, has created a mindset for people that they're not against us because we have freedoms and democracy. Oh, they're against us because what we've actually done and what has occurred to people when we have intervened. Now, I have over 127 instances going clear back, including the Americas, and, the, and, and taking over virtually every Indian territory where our intervention meant that another group was subjugated and then put to, uh, put to the test that they had to live under our rules and treaties, of which we never seemed to, to obey by. And now the world looks at us maybe with a different eye. Maybe they're not cut up in our—they're not seeing us with the eye of illusion that we see ourselves. And so, therefore, 
they're looking at us differently. And, uh, and I believe until we understand how we have created a history, and since the average American is clueless about history, if I said, tell us about how we invaded Cuba, when? Tell us about when we invaded Nicaragua, when? Tell us how we supported 47 straight dictatorships in a 14-year period throughout Africa and, uh, and Latin America and in the 60s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. They, they say, what? And what did that do to the people there? I don't know. And the death squads we supported in Pinochet, I don't know. So it's not from a left or right perspective. It's just an accurate historical perspective to see that when we do intervene, irrespective of what we tell the people and the world, oh, we're intervening for truth or justice or democracy or freedom, well, those are just slogans. What is the reality on the ground, and why is it that in every country we do intervene, the average person is never better off, but the elites are, depending upon the alliance they create with us. And that has an awful lot to do, ultimately, with the war on terrorism. Unless you can, unless you can understand the history of America's intervention, how in the world do you think that just with pure military might you're going to defeat something that's not a standing army, but rather an ideology? Your thoughts, please. Yeah, well, you know, a couple of years ago, um, as a kind of precy of uh, my latest book, Dark Ages America, I wrote an article called The Unsayables. And I define the unsayables as things that you were not allowed to say in American public. And then the irony of it was I couldn't get the article published. Because <laughs> <No. laughs> I had said the unsayables. Nobody would take it. Nobody would give me a reason why, you know. This included Harper's Magazine, who you think, whom you think would, would, would do a, a little better, you know. Um, but nobody wanted to touch it. Uh, and the problem, again, is that um, you have a, a public that wants to live in illusion. Um, you know, I mean, one of my, this is one of my favorite quotes. It's actually recent, June 5th. It was our president speaking at the G8 summit in Rostock, Germany. The quote is, Russia shouldn't worry. We need missiles in Poland to protect Europe from rogue nations who use force to impose their ideology on other people. Hmm. And I thought, duh. <laughs> mm. Who, what is the rogue nation in the world today that is imposing its ideology on other people? Guess what? You know? you know that line from Robert Browning about how if we could only see ourselves as others see us. Um, as far as the issue of our role in the war on terrorism, um, the... Uh, the, the term that the CIA uses for the unintended consequences of our intervening in the affairs of other nations, especially in a clandestine way, uh, is blowback. And that was made the title of a book by Chalmers Johnson, who's uh, actually written three books on the topic of the American empire collapsing. It's also a major section of this recent book I did, Dark Ages in America, but what I say is, that the, and what, what Chalmers Johnson says as well, is that we're never interested in considering our role in, in fomenting terrorism. In other words, as you said, the explanation is that somehow it arose out of a political vacuum. A bunch of insane people suddenly hated us and flew planes into the World Trade Center and so on. Um, as opposed to the possibility that uh, the CIA has, in a nefarious and um, clandestine way, been overthrowing uh, legitimate governments 
that is democratically elected leaders uh, around the world since 1953 when we put the Shah of Iran on the throne. Now the torture and the brutality of that regime uh, which we supported until finally there was the um, revolution in Iran of 1979, the Khomeini revolution, uh, that was pretty horrible and there's no doubt in the Iranian mind who caused that, who was associated with that. And, you know, the record is um, pretty clear. Uh, the number, the bibliography of books, um, William Blum's book, for example, Killing Hope, um, I think it was published first in the U.K. under the title The CIA. But basically, Killing Hope is a really good title. That's what we did. We went around the world finding nationalist movements that were interested in self-determination, the same thing we were interested in in 1776, and we snuffed them out. We raped those countries. And then, then, when, for example, Khomeini calls us the great Satan, you know, not that I'm a big fa you know, a fan of fundamentalism, Islamic fundamentalism, but when he calls us the great Satan, or the world-devouring United States, let's just say that the Iranian people knew exactly what he was talking about. They were, they, they were not deluded like the American people. They understood exactly where the torture had come from, you know, who had done what. So they, al they also didn't forget a year war with Iraq where we backed Iraq. That's right. That's and when, right. And when Iraq was using chemical warfare on gassing the Iranians in the marsh fields, England had supplied the gas. We had supplied biologicals, botulism, and anthrax to the CDC. I have the actual bills of lading on that to prove that. I put this in my film, uh, Gulf War Syndrome, Killing Our Own. And yet the world looked not at all on that as significant that we had broken all the Geneva Conventions by testing biologicals against the ban and then giving the biologicals to Saddam Hussein, who then used them against Iran. So understandably... We have caused an image in the minds of people we have touched that is at odds. And I want to get to the next to the last part of this, and that is that our image, and this is going to go a little deeper in this subject, that, 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 that I'm very interested in what you have to say. Our image is that we are a righteous, moral, uh, God-fearing society, and we always begin an argument with they, as if anyone else who has any challenge to us, are wrong. So if I talk about being against the war, and I did over 46 broadcasts prior to going into Iraq why I was against it, then we are not only in the minds of the establishment, and especially people on Fox, they immediately denigrate you as supporting terrorism or, or wanting America to lose. Well, I don't want America to lose. I certainly don't want Americans to suffer casualties. But at the same time, that is their mindset because they're thinking, gee whiz, the threat, the threat now that is against us is not merely the terrorist, but anyone who speaks out in America. And so hence the society is a whole is surprised and affronted. <clears throat> and then they become apprehensive against anything that represents even symbolically a narrative against our intervention. So then any threat, whether it's a mortal threat or a theoretical threat by people such as yourself, or Noam Chomsky, or myself, or anyone else, is then looked upon as existential uh, because we're talking about responsibilities that we have not adhered to to live a, uh, live a principled life. If you're really moral, live morally. If you are a believer in the ethics of democracy, then respect democracy elsewhere, not just here. And they can't handle that. So therefore, they identify 
anyone that challenged them as needing to be a symbolic um, um, battering ram. And hence, right now, there's a massive movement uh, on the part of many in the media, Billy Crystal and many of those individuals, to say that if you do not support the president or you do not support this administration in Iraq, therefore you are part of the problem of bringing terrorism to America. And I would argue to the contrary. I certainly don't want terrorist, terrorist activity in the United States, but I want to understand what causes terrorism and how to, how to offer a way of resolving it. If you're not looking at ways of resolving conflict, then all you're doing is contributing to it. And we do nothing to resolve conflict. We feel that the dominance of our righteous position in and of itself should mean that we are the moral authority. So if you don't seek anyone else as a moral authority, then it would be like in, in 1243 at the Spanish Inquisition, and you're looking at a person who's suffering and saying, only by you know confessing your sins can I uh, feel that you are redeemed enough to, uh, to, to stop the punishment. And the world is saying, stop punishing us, America, you know. Uh, why do you look at us as, as demons? And we look at everyone who is not as rich and powerful as being inferior to us, and hence they do not have a sense of the soul and of, of a uniqueness. We do not respect life in our own country. We're willing to exploit it at any means, including our children or senior citizens who are eating cat food because they can't afford regular food, and 43 million Americans are now below the homeless level, All right, and 35 million Americans go to bed hungry each day with Bill Gates can't find the idea of how to feed the hungry in America to redistribute wealth so that people have an opportunity to increase the quality of their lives. If we can't stop the suffering here, then why should we be any more palpably interested in the suffering elsewhere? Your thoughts, please. Well, um, the first thing that occurs to me is that although there's a lot of lip service paid to freedom of speech in the United States, uh, I think you are correct, if I can extrapolate from what you said, in saying that dissent in the United States is equivalent to treason. That's how people react. Again, we don't have to blame the neocons. We don't have to blame George Bush. Just Mr. John Q. Public. That's what he believes. And it's kind of interesting because a European critic, for example, would never be labeled by his or her opponents, uh, no matter how fundamental the criticism, would not be labeled by his or her opponents as un-Swedish or un-Italian. I mean, those phrases don't even exist in those languages. That's ridiculous. But in the United States, immediately, if you have any any counter-narrative, as you put it, um, you are un-American and you are a traitor. And um, that that... You know, I was fascinated for a while as to why they would be the case, because from the outside, again, it has a kind of demented quality to it, you know. It means, basically, there is no discussion. There's only one narrative. Um, I would say that, uh, you know, when when you say, where does terrorism come from? Terrorism is really the price of empire. If you're going to screw other people over, finally, they're going to fight back. And that's what happened on 9-11. But the narrative is a very different one. It's not about us screwing other people over. Um, In fact, uh, you know, your litany of facts about it is quite extensive. I would also uh, recommend to our audience a book by, quote, Anonymous. The real name is Michael Scheuer, uh, who wrote a book a few years ago called Imperial Hubris. Scheuer was the CIA's... Uh, point man on Osama bin Laden for 17 years. And in that book, he 
he documents all the grievances that Osama brought against the United States and his comment about that list of grievances uh, is, you know, this guy's got a point. Um, these are things like stationing troops near holy Islamic sites for 12 years, U.S. troops, giving $3 billion a year to Israel and practically nothing to the Palestinians. I mean, a long list of very substantive grievances. And in interviews that Osama did in, with CNN and uh, Time magazine in the mid-'90s, uh, he basically made it clear, you, you screw us over and we'll screw you over back. We'll fight back, and that's, that's exactly what happened. That narrative will never enter the American consciousness. The uh, problem of why dissent immediately is equated with treason in the United States, to me, is one of a kind of religious cause. I think, I think thought in the United States is essentially religious. From the very beginning, uh, the republic was based on the rejection of something else. Uh, rejection of the old world, rejection of Europe, and so on. And this was something that's, that Hegel called negative identity. You define yourself by what you're not. The problem is it leaves a rather large hole in the soul because it doesn't say who you are. And the result of that is that there is a religion in America. This is something that exactly 40 years ago Robert Bell at Berkeley argued there is a religion in America, but it's not Protestantism or anything else. The real religion in America, he said, is a civil religion, in which in order to fill that vacuum, from the very beginning, uh, what we did was we defined America as a religion. And you have John Winthrop on the Arabella in 1629 preaching that the United States will be like a city on a hill, You know, famous phrase revived by Ronald Reagan. Um, well, the city on the hill is not merely a model for uh, other nations, but we are going to spread our way of life um, by force, if necessary, whether people want our way of life or not. And finally, when you are in a position like that, um, it becomes very hard to see your reaction to other countries not being grateful to what you're doing for them um, doesn't correspond to the reality of those other countries, what they feel, what they think. But you're in a position always of having a brittle identity, which I think the United States does. Um, the, the result is that you always have to be right. That which is outside of you always has to be evil. And you are engaged in which, to use religious language, is called a Manichaean struggle, black versus white. This occurs in the speeches of almost every president. The inaugural address of John Kennedy is filled with that kind of language. Um, the result is, um, to quote another book, Robert Kagan, that we are a dangerous nation. That was the title of his book. And I got a kick out of it because Robert Kagan, as you may know, is a neoconservative. You can't get further to the right than Robert Kagan, maybe Attila the Hun, but he's pro-war, pro-American enterprise, pro, you know, the whole line of uh, the extreme right wing in the United States. And it's interesting that he writes a book that if you take away the bias and just look at the data of this dangerous nation, this book could have been written by Noam Chomsky. The data is the, are the same. 
And, you know, Kagan's take on it is that it's good that we're a dangerous nation. Uh, you know, as Colin Powell liked to say, like, liked to say, and maybe still does, we're the bully on the block, and that's a good thing. Well, there are maybe less than one-half of one percent of the American public that, may, that thinks it's not good that we should be a dangerous nation, that thinks it's not good that we should be threatening others. Um, you know, I like to say that the Kagan practically described something like the aggressiveness uh, of the American public is, um, and the American nation is encoded in our DNA, and it's characterized. We are the American is characterized by material greed and moral righteousness. That's the soul of America. Well, when I give talks about this, I say to the audience, if you knew somebody who is characterized by material greed and moral righteousness, would you want to sit down and have a beer with them? Is this somebody you'd pick as a friend? So that's, that's the whole thing. The Americans can't understand how we come on. You know, until this recent ruling about everybody has to have a passport, even if you go to Canada or whatever it is, um, only 12% of the adult population in the United States owned a passport. Americans are not interested in what's going on on the outside. And they are not capable of looking from the outside at what we are doing. So there's only one possible narrative. And if you disagree with it, you're a traitor. Well, they should take a little history class from the Ottoman, because when the Ottoman Empire, at its height, looked back, it saw itself as the reincarnation of the great Roman Empire under Justinian. And if you look at the Habsburg uh, Empire, they saw themselves also as the caretakers of that great Roman, uh, Roman regime. Well, take a look at the Roman regime and how it went from the height to the lowest. Now I see people who are looking at themselves as modern-day modern day Caesars the people who no longer want to be rich but have to be famous. And how can you be famous unless you do something that draws attention to yourself? So it's building the biggest McMansion on the block. It's having the, the most ostentatious lifestyle. It is about getting your name in the paper or trying to influence some political dialogue. But does it make it a better world? Do, you, do people become more sensitive to each other's authentic needs? or the person their own needs. No, because at the end of the day, anyone who is so insecure that they must find redemption through excessive material possession is indeed on the wrong track. And the more you do, the less you're going to find fulfillment. So it becomes an addiction. that You have to take ever more heroin to find that high. They have to have ever more money, ever more power, ever more celebrity, and ever more control in order to find any sense that they actually matter. Because there's so many people all trying to get in the same ring. It's like WrestleMania with 10 million millionaires, 1,000 billionaires, and 100 million wannabe millionaires all in the same ring being with each other's ego. It's a spiritual tussle, but it's the dark and negative side of human nature. And it does not aspire us to understand the work. And, and if you go back to Immanuel Kant, who uh, divided, uh, divided the concept of reason, uh, originally from Descartes, into the rationalist, using the mathematical model for science, like uh, Spinoza or Leibniz or the empiricist out of England, Francis Bacon, Thomas Hobbes, uh, John Locke, George Berkeley, David Hume, or Isaac Newton, or, or uh, Pascal. And you look then at, at even Thomas Paine, and you say, my goodness, how did we go so far from people saying we are all so capable of reason to a nation today so devoid of reason and so embroidered with reaction. 
reaction from our insecurity nationally, politically, ideologically, educationally, and even morally. So we feel that as long as we have might, it is all right, whatever we did to get there. I want to thank you very much for your thoughts today. You've been very inspiring, and I certainly appreciate it. And and my guest, Professor Morris Berman, thank you very much, Dr. Berman, for being with us. Thanks for having me on, Gary.